2022 was the year of crypto contagion. One of the biggest platform explosions, of course, was Celsius. And nobody knows more about what was going on inside Celsius than Jason Stone. Some have called him a whistleblower, but his company, KeyFi, was acquired. And then he eventually left because he saw all of the bad behavior that was happening within the company. We share quite a bit in this story about the inner workings of Celsius and these platforms, what was being done, what was being done wrong, what was maybe being done illegally. You do not want to miss this story. Let's go. I feel like this is going to be the easiest podcast ever because it's story time, right? It's uh, story you, time. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you you effectively have an incredible story to tell, and uh, that's what you're going to share. So I think we can start maybe not all the way at the beginning, like uh, birth and and uh, bar mitzvah, if you had one or, or something. But um, <laughs> I did, I did. <laughs> obviously, you had a pretty contentious relationship with Celsius, so we should probably start from the beginning and and then uh, work our way up to where it's at now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Celsius acquired my staking as a service company uh, back in, or the transaction was supposed to occur back in mid-2020. Um, we kind of joined the Celsius team. Uh, and by August 2020, we were starting the OXB1 account, which people kind of came to know as one of the largest DeFi yield farmers in uh, in Ethereum at the time. Um you know, as things evolved over the next six months from there, I kind of uncovered a lot of what the federal examiner uncovered recently and what a lot of people have been saying relating to, uh, you know, the fraud or not just the fraud, the, the, <laughs> the unknown unknowns that were going on at that company, right? And the different kind of segments of executives trying to do different things with, uh, with the company, with their own money, with the company's money, et cetera. So after I kind of uncovered this and, you know, clearly saw that I was, you know, being lied to and that things didn't make any sense, nothing added up, I kind of made my stand. I said, I don't want to be involved anymore. And I took a step back in March 2021. A year and a half later, they ended up going bankrupt. And, you know, there was this, you know, massive uh, disagreement as to, you know, what our original contract said, what really happened, what should have been paid to who. And that kind of finds us where we are today, which is uh, we have an adversarial proceeding going on within the global Celsius bankruptcy. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. Uh, we ended up signing a litigation stay recently to, in the hopes to settle because for the most part, the monies that Kefi still has are mostly in NFTs that, you know, the estate says is theirs, we say is ours, but at the end of the day, it's it's such a small amount of money that we've actually Celsius has already spent more, almost more money than the actual dispute is over, right? And it kind of in the last few months, I've really seen this craziness in the US bankruptcy system that has got to be addressed by someone, you know. It 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 it's like we have this bankruptcy system so that U.S. citizens or creditors that are U.S. citizens of bankrupt companies can be taken care of, right? But then we have this situation where 
so many of them have happened so quickly and we really just see these law firms charging exorbitant fees and you know making the estate so much smaller day in and day out like there have been these crazy like emails we'll ask to liquidate some almost worthless nfts and then the lawyers on the estate side end up charging 10 times the amount of money just in emails back and forth to determine if we can sell those nfts then the nfts that are considering to be sold are worth you know and that's just like negative ev for everyone except for big law right and what i realized in this process is something kind of incredible it's not just the bankruptcy system or slash the creditors that are that are hurting because of this right it's actually the taxpayer right because the bankruptcy system is is run by the department of justice right you have lawyers judges clerks uh you know the us trustee the fbi you have all these organizations that the taxpayer is actually paying for, right? It's not just, it's not just the estates that are being charged money by lawyers for legal fees on the side of, you know, trying to get back money. It's also the American people. So I look at this and I'm like, we've seen so much blow up and anger around how SVB was run and how all of these systems and services that are run are, you know, not really uh, in the benefit of the people. Right. And I, I just feel like this is a prime example of of inefficiencies or or wrongdoing in our in like uh, as a function of how our government doesn't catch things, right? They they set up these these law firms to be in charge of these estates and be in charge of you know these bankruptcy processes, but uh, the incentives are not aligned. Right. The the longer that these processes go on, the more that lawyers get to charge, and the more it costs the U.S. taxpayer with all these different organizations that are being charged money. So it's kind of crazy, and I, I really worry that you know not just with my situation, but with you know creditors globally on all of these different bankruptcies that have happened over the last year. You know where where is the end? You know like where where is the end for everyone? I mean, I'm a Voyager creditor. I think everybody who listens to the podcast knows that. And looking back in hindsight, they'd simply just liquidated the day that they declared bankruptcy. Instead of declaring bankruptcy, we've gotten 75 cents on the dollar, something roughly like that. Every exactly. single day that every single day that passes, they're spending, you know, tens of million dollars a month on advisors, lawyers, as you said, a failed FTX deal that was poorly vetted, a potentially failed Binance US deal, each delaying the payback. Each, as you said, costing creditors, that's we're who pay for it. We're literally paying those lawyers for every one of those emails out of our balance, right? And the taxpayers, as you said, it's an absurd, fraudulent process itself that never ends well for the creditors. I mean, it's really disgusting now having gone through it, how long it takes, how much it's milked and what the result is. And the part you didn't mention the only reason that these companies largely are filing chapter 11 is to protect the executives. Yeah. Like Voyager crazy. decide, I'm sorry, like I'm not putting my tin hat on, but Voyager decided bankruptcy was better than liquidation because Steve Ehrlich and his friends didn't want to go to jail. But does that really protect them from jail? Does it? Yeah. Yes. Part of the, part of the proceedings here have been largely to them to avoid the problems that they, they could have had. I mean, it's it's pretty. Uh, it's part of the negotiation and the process. I mean, what do you? You're, listen, you're deep in the weeds of Celsius. Do you think Mashinsky gets in trouble at the end of this? 
Absolutely. I, well, but I also have real, I've seen that there are two completely separate processes, right? One of them is the, the bankruptcy system, the Department of Justice, you know, running through the bankruptcy court. And then separately, there's, if there was criminal fraud, then that's a different arm of the government, right? That's building a case or might be building a case against him or other executives. So, and I do actually see why there is a separation of these things, right? Oh, yeah. in one, on, on one hand, like it's, uh, if there was, uh, you know, criminal action taken and needs to be accounted for, then a certain organization uh, or a certain three-letter agency goes after those people to hold them accountable. And then that does have an effect on the bankruptcy process, but isn't like directly part of it, right? So it's almost, you know, you, you have to wonder if, in certain cases, they should be, I don't know what that would look like, but they should be kind of uh, merged together. It's hard, right? But we do live in a free society and we do, you know, have, you know, freedom of choice and will or. Yeah. And, and the, 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 yeah, the added wrinkle, obviously, is that then sort of the SEC or the regulators get involved and start to declare the assets that are involved in the bankruptcy as potentially securities and not securities and hold up the process further. So while they are vague and refuse to make a decision, the process goes on mm-hmm. and creditors and taxpayers pay more money. It, it really feels yeah. fraudulent, like a fraudulent process having gone through it. Yeah, no, no, 100%. And, you know, I think that actually, hopefully that the last year's kind of sequential bankruptcies and at the speed at which they happen and the number of people affected will actually spark some type of anger in Congress or or something around uh, how the business of big law relative to what's best for you know creditors and like the US taxpayer um, hopefully that starts to you know come into perspective because it seems like our government has, created a system or not our government currently but you know history has created a system where almost like we want answers at the expense of people's benefits right um they exactly right yeah they'll they'll spend all of people's money in order to get answers that won't make a difference but that money could have made a difference to you know the pocket of each individual yeah. person. And they should liquidate. As you talked about the process earlier. So what they should do is just liquidate and then and then litigate, right? I mean, do give everybody I, I their money so. back first and then sort out the rest. But the problem is, then who's going to pay for it? <laughs> right, right. No, it's it, it really is crazy. But I think that it it the the anger that the the, the thing that strikes a chord with me is like it's one thing where creditors get charged for the bankruptcy process, right? That's where the money comes from now. But then people aren't thinking about the other side and the fact that there is another side, right? And it is our government. And we are the people that end up paying for that out of our taxes. So the longer that these things go on, the more, you know, the the, the greater cost is borne by the taxpayer and by each of us individually as creditors or by, you know, individuals as part of this process. It's just crazy. And I wish that, um, I mean, you can't, you can't conflate different types of situations, but you know, there's, there's such visceral anger around, um, around different types of things these days, whether it's, you know, uh, banking run awry, whether it's, uh, the way that trans rights are, are addressed by different, you know, Congress people, right? There are these things that that are these fiery moments that people get super animated about, 
And you have to think about like, this is a huge group of people that's been affected, right? It's not just Celsius, not just Voyager, not just FTX. It's all of the people, you know, probably millions of people in the US who have been affected by these crypto bankruptcies. And it just, to me, I think it's it's kind of shown us so many negatives and inefficiencies in our processes, but no one seems to be doing anything about it. I'm not sure what can be done about it, to be honest. I'm just sitting here, you know, as kind of a, a part of the process, but yeah, same, you know, same, but there's people smarter than us who are much more knowledgeable of the process. We could certainly <laughs> figure out ways that you and I don't pay for, uh, these, these, uh, court cases in, indefinitely when we're already down and out and, and, and have lost money and know that we're only getting a small percentage of our assets back. So, yeah. Yeah. It, and it's really sad. You know, I wish there was like a oversight on how the law firms work, but then that's just another cost, you know? And it's like, where does it end? But did you guys get paid when they bought you out? No, uh, sorry, excuse me. They paid us $65,000 for the assets that, uh, the technology assets that we had, but it was supposed to basically be an earnout where we would make a percentage of profit uh, based on the profits that we made for the business. And they said that they were hedging, but they said that they were hedging their entire business, which now we all know from the federal examiner that they weren't. So there weren't any profits to be had. So basically we didn't get paid. We just got screwed. And I'm not a, I didn't have major deposits at Celsius, but you know, what I had built out as my business, you know, unfortunately we didn't get anything out of, um, they were supposed to pay us a bunch of sell token, which we never got, but obviously that would have been worthless anyway. So, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a crazy merry-go-round, you know, it really is. Okay. So let's dig more into the weeds of the story. Then while you were at Celsius, what was the behavior that you identified that was bad in as much as you can talk about it? What, you know, yeah. raised your red flags? What, kind of got you panicked. What caused you to leave? Because I mean, as you said, you built this company, yeah. you sold it to them, and then you bailed. It must have been pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the The first trigger uh, was this situation where executives would basically uh, lie to one another, I'll call it, and just tell each other things to to induce other executives to like do what Mashinsky wanted, right? So there was this uh, ethos at the beginning of uh, you know, we can only do DeFi with, um, with international customer deposits. So at first it was, okay, Jason, you're only touching international customer deposits. Then it was, oh, we don't actually have a separation of international versus U.S. Uh, domestic customer deposits. Um, we set up other entities that'll make this okay. And I just saw like one executive telling another, telling another that like, things were going to happen. So like, let's just do it now. And that type of, you know, behavior when you're dealing with hundreds of millions or billions of dollars is just absolutely not okay, right? Because you're basically just passing the buck onto someone else or some situation that doesn't exist. So that kind of came up. And I, you know, I was scared myself, because I was the one actually deploying these assets. And I was like, well, what is or isn't legal? It was almost like a kid in a candy store. I saw a shiny object and they were like, go and do this DeFi stuff. And they said that the everything was regulatorily compliant at the beginning. And that kind of story started breaking down. So, you know, then I started asking more questions. The answers got hairier and hairier. And then kind of we ended in, in the place that we did. Another thing was just 
I know that a lot of Slack messages have come out in terms of like internally what people were saying about sell token and, you know, what the internal company or the internal people believed about sell token versus external people. And, you know, that's just like a, a microcosm of, of the true problem. I mean, one time in, I think it was January on Slack, one of the, one of the like execution uh, deployment execution guys, uh, told me that, you know, Alex had told him to just start buying sell token the year before I got there and spent like $80 million of customer Bitcoin on sell token just to, and it, there weren't questions asked about why that was right. But it, and now in retrospect, we all understand it was to boost the price to continue the flywheel, of, you know, them selling tokens at higher prices or borrowing against sell token, whatever it was. Um, but that stuff just like jumped out at me and even in the microcosm I was in, I was like, this can't be right. So it's a Ponzi scheme. So I don't, Okay, it's not, it's a, it's a, uh, it's an iteration of a Ponzi scheme. Correct. Correct. I I don't think, I don't think that like they were, they were running their business thinking to themselves, this is a Ponzi scheme. I, I, and, and there's a difference between that and Madoff because you know, yeah, he was a, totally intentional, of course. Totally, totally intentional, right? And maybe intentions at the end of the day don't matter, right? But from the perspective of what I saw when I was there, they definitely did not believe that, like, that they were operating any type of Ponzi scheme because they were they were looking at it like a startup, and they were looking at it like we need to do this to then make uh, the probability of our success greater, and that is a reasonable in a in in a complete vacuum that idea isn't bad but when you're dealing at, uh, as a bank right or as some type of investment firm you can't you know gamble your own equity against your customers assets right so it's just yeah crazy. i just don't think customers had any idea that their funds were being aggressively traded at a hedge fund effectively a at a hedge fund, but B to buy the assets of the very company that they were banking themselves with. And then you get into obviously the entire marketing scheme of Celsius, which I also, you know, fell hook, light and sinker for. I had Mashinsky on my podcast and listened to him explain how they made money and how JP Morgan lends securities. He didn't say anything about going deep into DeFi. I'll tell you that. But I mean, unbank yourself, right? I mean, I think the biggest problem here was transparency. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just I think that the majority of customers of Celsius worldwide and FTX and BlockFi believe that they were depositing their money into a bank to earn interest and didn't understand that they were actually putting in the hands of effectively a bunch of degenerates who are willing to go way down the risk curve to make sure they could continue to offer those huge yields. I mean, I, you know, listen, yeah. I, I've I've told the story, but I'll, I'll briefly tell it again. You and I met in Dubai. Right. Well, I, I went off site for about two hours for an unplanned meeting with uh, Three Arrows Capital. But I know a lot of people that were Whoa. there did, did those as well. I crashed it. It wasn't a meeting with me <laughs> um, okay. because I'm a Voyager creditor. And I had one question. I walked in, Kyle saw me, he kind of gave a wince, you know, because I've obviously been critical of them. And I said, Kyle, what the hell did you say or what lie did you tell to Steve Ehrlich to get him to give you $700 million with no collateral? And he laughed. He said, Scott, I swear to you, He's like, I've done a lot of things. We blew up. I swear to you, Steve Ehrlich came to us and said, please take this $700 million. I need to put it to work. I and I believe, believe him. And I believe yeah. him. And then I said, so what Like, what balance sheet, what P&L did you send? He was like, he asked us for nothing. He came to us and said, listen, 
I have $700 million. My, I need to pass on, you know, seven, eight, 9% yields to my customers. This money has to be put to work to do that. Take it. Yikes. So coming back to the transparency and disclosures, if an email went out to all Voyager customers and said, today, Voyager decided to give an unsecured loan to Three Arrows Capital Fund at $700 million, a lot of people would have withdrawn their money and that would have been their choice. It's crazy. You know? Is that the same kind of behavior you were seeing at Celsius? It seems like you were they were more focused on utilizing customer deposits to basically recycle into Celsius token, which raised the price of Celsius token, which allowed them to pay more rewards, which allowed them to take bigger loans. I mean, I know that they were in anchor anchor, you know, like a week before the Luna blow up. Right, right. You know, it's an interesting uh, parallel that you draw there between the mindset of the Voyager execs versus Celsius execs. And the, and the honest answer is I don't know, but I, I think it's interesting to consider, you know, the types of people that are, that were running these businesses, right? What they were actually believing themselves at the time they were doing these things. Like in the Voyager example, just not being very familiar with it, just based on what you said, it's almost like someone who, it's almost like a startup executive who raised all this money who instead of trying to build a business that he knows won't work, should just give back the money, right? But being uh, somehow stopping themselves from making that mental jump that that's the right move, right? I agree. Versus, I, I don't know that they were. I don't know that they were like criminal in mentality at the time. Any of them. I think that uh, they were a victim of their own success to some degree. Because yeah. I mean, I, I can only I can speak to Voyager, but I remember kind of when that Dogecoin boom happened. Yep. And Mark Cuban was, you know, a, a, I guess an investor, a supporter of Voyager and then the Mavericks took Doge and they had millions of people sign up who just basically wanted to trade Dogecoin. They weren't ready for that. Took three months to onboard people. But now you have a million more customers than you were prepared for or whatever the number is. And you need to give them yield. Right. So basically yep. the, the, the speed and velocity with which these platforms scaled because of the bull run. I think sent them just way further down the risk curve to not lose those customers. Because right. if you said and one day, listen, uh, we we can't get the yield. It's going to be 1%, right? And BlockFi actually at one point did drop their rates almost, I think, to that level. Then people would have left. And I guess they probably feared losing their customers. It's not an excuse, certainly. Yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 interesting because you. it's almost like building a business expecting the bull run right? Or the continued, and this goes not just to crypto, but to the larger like macroeconomic world where we've built a system of credit on credit, right? And if the right levers aren't in place or the right, right controls aren't in place to manage that on the risk side and the kind of uh, emotional mentality side, you know, really bad things can happen, right? When the economy isn't continuing just to to boom and go up. And we do, everyone knows it's, we go through boom and bust cycles, right? So you 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 can't build a business on the on the theory of hope, right? The you expectation of the never-ending bull market, right? That's what they were building right. their business on, right? That none of this stuff can ever go down. Sure, and if it does, not not being cognizant of the fact that they'd be completely screwed if it did. I mean, what else did you see there that was of great concern? I mean, I guess we should give some context too. You said that you're sort of in internal litigate litigation with them. In that yep. capacity, I mean, to a degree, you've become, I guess, an informant against Celsius, correct? I mean, is that the proper vernacular uh, for it? I would maybe the word that you're looking for there is whistleblower. I have had conversations with uh, agencies in our government that are 
confidential um, uh, relating to their uh, looking at this company and the people that work there. Um, and I do personally think that at some point they will, you know, file charges like they have against FTX executives. And it actually really interests me as to why, like what order <laughs> those things happen in and like why they, it takes in some cases many years to build a case against one executive at one place, but, you know, much less at the other. Does it have to do with, you know, political motivations or uh, is there like a reason? Is it harder to get information on one of them? I honestly okay. am, don't know. And I guess we'll never know, but um, yeah, I, uh, it's uh, hard. I, like, yeah, I hate to tin hat, but I mean, SBF was the guy meeting with Gensler and meeting with Maxine Waters <laughs> and sitting with the politicians. I think they had to act fast uh, against him. Right. So I think that he just was first by sheer virtue of the embarrassment and egg on the face of politicians who had sort of been involved or meeting with him and stuff and the rest probably i think probably if mashinsky or or executives at celsius to some capacity end up in trouble that's probably more uh reflective of the normal process i think sbf got fast-tracked <laughs> yeah yeah probably probably and and honestly like the congress you know congress and our government is so in a vacuum right they are they're dealing with something that's brand new and they don't like have internal staffers who are necessarily experts on these things, right? So they have to like get up to speed and they're being told that they need to make a decision on something that they fundamentally are just learning about at the time that they're being told to make a decision on it. You know, I don't know how much I'm not like going to place blame on uh, Congress people or senators for, you know, being, you know, uh, swindled by some of what other swindled. people are saying are, are the Sam smartest Bateman people in the world. On this right? show, I had Sam Bateman on this show like seven times, you know what I mean? Probably between, I mean, we all thought, Listen, yeah, we, uh, we all uh, want to believe in the people that we look up to, right? At, at the end of the day, um, as successful at the time that they are. And that's really difficult. It's yeah, a I difficult mean, perhaps, thing to internalize. I mean, you would know better than me. Maybe Celsius is just a more tangled web in trying to figure out exactly what they did because what you described is less outright, I think, than holy crap, like the funds were being sent to Alameda instead of FTX from customer deposits. Yeah. And I think this, it, maybe it was just more outright fraud and there's no way to explain, you know, seven, eight, nine billion dollars going missing in that uh, context. But I don't know. You're right. It's a, it's a tough, I don't, I don't understand exactly. Maybe cookie. we got to get a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Which also costs more money, right? So, um, so where do you stand now? So then where, where does your process stand now with, with Celsius and where do yeah. they stand in their bankruptcy proceedings? I've seen that of late, there's a lot more bidders and a lot more interest. Some Michael yep. Harrington was, uh, was forming a company to, yeah, to potentially. I, I saw that too. And honestly, um, I haven't been following the main bankruptcy process, like on a day-to-day -day basis. From what I've heard, there was this uh, Nova Wolf uh, bid that was going to be the only bid. And then at the last minute, these two other bidders came in, which I guess is good for you know all creditors or people related to the estate. The more people that want the assets, hopefully the price will go up, right? That's what an auction is. Um, in my process, we're arguing over like, depending on what NFTs are worth at a given time, like $4 million worth of assets, $5 million worth of assets. Uh, the judge has allowed us to continue. And this is another dichotomy. Like it's, it's really like a, I have a lot of respect for the judge and like the FBI, the government in terms of them, like look, taking the time to look at 
NFT DeFi and say, okay, until we figure out like who really owns these assets, like we're going to allow TeFi, which is the company that Celsius acquired, where the NFTs are held, still continue to farm and do um, you know relatively delta neutral yield farming with these assets to earn interest while you know while we figure oh, out uh, who, who actually owns these. At the same time, uh, you have these situations where like they're so they're letting so they're letting us do that, but then they're not taking action on the other side, which is you know crazy to me. But long story short, where we are is we're in this litigation stay, which we've signed in the hopes to settle and basically, you know, sit down and say, this is what happened to all the assets. This is where they all went. This was the impermanent loss. This were the profits on dollar basis, coin basis, et cetera. And then, you know, hopefully some type of, you know, asset exchange and then, you know, walk away. But it's since we signed that, it seems like the lawyers, um, at least on the Celsius side, not the committee side, but the Celsius side have done everything they can to throw wrenches into the settlement process because I really believe that they don't really want wage. this to settle. Right. Because they get they'll they yeah. won't be continuing to charge fees if this settles. So like they've already charged um to my knowledge, I think more than four and a half million dollars just on fighting me and we haven't gone to litigation yet. And the total amount that we're arguing over is about that amount. So it's like, what? You know? And it's just it's insane. It's insane. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm a small piece of the, you know, global Celsius story. And, uh, yeah, I honestly wish I could have, they were just, they were threatening me after I left. Um, you know, and they had me followed for a while. I was like, I was truly fearing for my safety. I, I wanted to kind of come out and say, Hey, I, I didn't know what a- avenue or format to, to come out at. Cause they were, I, I was hoping that they would honor their agreement, even though I left, they ended up not doing that. But regardless, they were like threatening me and I was, I was scared, you know, they were doing sketchy things. I didn't know what they could do. You know, they might more into, uh, let's talk more about that. I mean, you, they literally were following you like with the intention. I mean, I guess you don't know what their intention was, but because they were trying to like get something on you that if in the future. I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure, but I know that it happened for about the eight weeks after I initially left. Um, they were having me followed, I think because at the time, because their internal processing controls were so out of whack, they at first they were accusing me of stealing $400 million. I was like, guys, you wouldn't be able I to remember that. I, right. I remember yeah, yeah. that. They, right. So, you, you basically so, <laughs> came out, then they counter accused you of something, right? I mean, isn't that kind of... Right. But this is a year before all those lawsuits. Oh. So this is just like... So if you go back to the, the year before, they were actually just in their mind thinking that... Uh, they were just thinking that, okay, he somehow stole $400 million from us. So we're going to make sure that he doesn't like leave the country or something. Meanwhile... A year later, once we actually went went to court, they were like, "Oh, yeah, impermanent loss was that loss. He didn't actually steal that money." You know, it's like it's it, it just making decisions based on bad information, which I think is a lot of what all of this comes down to, right? It's is the bull market going to be forever? What's going to happen tomorrow? Like, who are these people? Right? It's all just you know bad information, and decisions are being made based on that, and then we end up in these situations, you know. There's so many crazy stories. I'm trying to remember like surrounding Celsius at the time. Wasn't one of them, and I don't know if this was true or not, that like one of the people managing hundreds of millions of dollars was like a 21-year-old girl or a 23-year-old girl or something like that. Was <laughs> That was even before I got there. So that had like stopped 
um, by the time I got there. And it was, but she actually had some finance experience. There were other people that were like 21, 22, 23, who had like were just out of college, not even finance majors, who they were just like, oh, here's a hundred million bucks, go deploy it on curve finance. What? You know, like what, what? Um, just, it's, it's really crazy to, to see. It's really crazy to see what's happened. I mean, your your personal litigation is nuts, and then you extrapolate that to the size of the entire thing. I mean, feels like this just takes years to resolve. It's really sad, but I it it I wish it I wish it wouldn't. You know, uh, I think everyone wishes that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it, maybe it just does take years. Maybe that's just the world that we live in. I, I don't know. So, what are you working on now? Uh, now I've actually turned some of my learnings from the DeFi world into some theories about how our, I guess, uh, society works in terms of what people need, uh, in terms of liquidity, how they live their lives. I think that what interests me the most these days is like, uh, I guess, institutional DeFi or real world assets on DeFi. I, I think that there's a lot of uh, lessons and notions that we can learn from how people operate in DeFi. Actually, you know what a really interesting fact is to me? Uh, the fact that like the most profitable like people on chain, uh, I think there was this article a couple of weeks ago, were basically the liquidators on Aave and Compound uh, in like the DeFi summer days, like late 2020, early 2021. And that's because they were basically serving this actual need, which was buyer of last resort, right? If someone is borrowing money against some illiquid asset, then it's the liquidator who actually, you know, safely makes money. But I think that that, and while that might sound weird, I think it's actually a good thing, uh, or it's a good model to live by, right? People have a lot of their wealth in paper equity, in collectibles, in things that are relatively illiquid. And being able to borrow against them, if there is a buyer of last resort, I think is a good thing. But it doesn't have to just be with crypto coins, right? It should be with any real world, any asset that that people that some other group of people in the world attributes value to, that you actually can uh, that that you can find a borrower that is willing to lend against, right? So even if you're paying a high interest rate, people have their stuff, they like their stuff, but they don't necessarily want to sell it. And they should be able to live their lives based on their total global wealth, as opposed to just kind of their banking level wealth. And I think that that is like one of the most interesting areas to me. And I think what that means is real world asset NFTs. And and that that can mean a lot of different things, but it's basically you know creating rails for real-world assets to gain liquidity through on-chain mechanisms. Um, I think that, and I and people say like NFTs are dead and all this stuff. And I think that they're talking about JPEGs. PFT. And this whole yeah, that's like about PFTs. PFTs. Come on, that, yeah, that's not yeah. what NFTs are about. Exactly. It's about technology, right? And I think that that's kind of where the natural evolution of this show goes. Um, yeah. It's using I mean, I that technology for... Yeah, I talked to Sid from Maple Finance recently. And I mean, that's kind of, you know, their, their I guess, main goal is either a t tokenizing assets, but more just making real world assets available for lending, you know, within DeFi. And it's a huge addressable market, literally endless. Imagine if you had one single, you know, platform where you could basically manage everything you own in your entire life digitally. Right. Right. And it's, right. it's an, it's incredible. But listen, I mean, I think the lost part of this story is that you 
quickly built an incredible platform that was worth buying for Celsius. Uh, it, I would I wouldn't say it was quickly. It took it took two years, but um, that's quickly was, quick quick not quickly for crypto maybe, but that's quickly in the real yeah, world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, listen, it was a technology that was specifically focused on uh, making staking easier and getting the best yields out of the proof of stake version one, which was not even what DeFi is today. It was the Qtums, the Horizons, the dashes of the world, right? But just the idea that uh, grouping coins together would you know, generate greater yield, doing that in a non-custodial fashion, at least <laughs> Celsius ideally wanted that. or And that was the crazy dichotomy of it, right? They wanted to be this decentralized, uh, honorable entity and ended up figuring out that the only way that they could get there was to do it the opposite way. I don't, I don't know. It, it, it really is something else, man. <laughs> but so, I mean, you've, you've got these ideas. Have you started building anything yet? Or are you just sort of waiting to see uh, what uh, fleshes out with Celsius first? Uh, no, I actually have started, uh, I've started building a company with a friend of mine, not necessarily in blockchain space. I think it's more of a web two company, but it, it, basically is trying to apply these DeFi ideals to the to the real world, which is how do you match buyer of last resort with and then lender and and lender with borrower, right? And doing that for things that are uh not the most like commonly thought of, you know, assets that you can borrow against, right? Whether it be high-end collectibles, sports cards, uh, high-end art, um, startup equity. I think that we need universal rails around those things. And hopefully we can build a company that can service those needs. Because I think that, you know, it also goes to this other point of like, how do you align interests, right? Like people, like Peter Thiel always says, uh, people should go and build a startup, right? Because they get way more for their, for the value of their time out of, doing a startup than doing a corporate job, right? But at the same time, then you get into these situations where these really successful entrepreneurs uh, build something for a long time and then aren't able to get liquidity because it's just not the path for their company that they expected, right? Whether it stays private or they can sell secondaries at you know a big discount, but then they're not as incentivized to see the company's continued success, right? If you created a market that was better uh, versed around lending as opposed to sale and those entrepreneurs and founders were still like incentivized or th their the value gain is still directly correlated to the success of their business then you create a much uh, more fluid process for keeping these you know bright minds uh continuing to disrupt and continuing to build without necessarily needing to worry about am i going to get that liquidity event right so it makes right. the jump from corporate to startup uh, way more uh, acceptable or way more palatable. And I think that that's kind of a human behavior change uh, more yeah, so like than, uh, yeah, and I think that that's what we're seeing, right? Where people are angry about what happened with these bankruptcies. People are angry about uh, how the world has evolved the last two years. I think even people were angry in 2008, but this is like 10 years later where we all know better in a way, right? And now I think the anger is a little bit different to a, a place where, we're ready to change our behavior, right? We're ready to be more accountable for uh, for our own well-being, and just taking a little bit more accountability for 
how we all uh, act and the services that we rely on and how we interact with um, the, you know, financial levers in our lives, I think will lead to, you know, a much better uh, structure for society. Has anything fundamentally changed in your view about DeFi now, having been in it for all these years, seeing all the, well, it was CeFi wipeouts of 2022, to be <laughs> honest, but, you know, uh, the state of regulation, the aggressive stance by the United States government. I mean, do you still think that all this is in, as inevitable as you obviously once did when you chose to put your time and effort into building yeah. these things? I mean, wh what's the state of DeFi, the state of crypto in your mind in 2023? Yeah, so I actually, and I know people are going to hate hearing this, but I think that DeFi is a great model for for enterprise finance or for 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 kind of a, a a new version of how existing processes and services are done, as opposed to doing something completely new. Right? I, I love decentralized stablecoins. I I think that there's you know a reason for them to exist, and there's a lot of reasons for these decentralized money markets to exist. However, I think the underlying technology, like the blockchain technology and the transparency and the rails around utilizing the DeFi processes for regular finance is, is what DeFi will become, right? Because that's the much, as opposed to changing people's minds about, uh, you know, go crypto or don't just saying, okay, here's blockchain technology that mimics or enables you to get better access to, you know, lending, borrowing other types of financial services, just because they're on chain, because it's all more simplified, right? It goes back to the original ideals of like where we were in 2017 with let's cut, cut the fat out of the finance uh, industry, right? I think that, I don't know, maybe this is why crypto is so cyclical, right? We go through these iterations and then we realize that the whole idea of this uh, thing is to cut fat out of the layers where there's, you know, basically inefficiencies due to how industry has grown in our country and how industry has grown with technology. Now we have better technologies that can make things more simple, that can, you know, make things cheaper for people or get people better rates. And I think that we're seeing that with AI right now, right? With ChatGPT. And it's just another way that people are realizing that things can be done more efficiently, more cheaply. And then you free up a lot of, you know, value that that was muddled before. And I think that that's kind of the ideals that I look for in moving forward in, in DeFi and just, you know, kind of blockchain technologies as underpinning, you know, financial services in the future. So there's still hope in the original premise is still there. For sure. For sure. We I always agree, come back to square but, one. You know, yeah. Cypher, cypher pumps, right? Like don't rely on the services that, you know, you take for granted because eventually they might not be there or you can't always trust the people running them. Right. I think we've learned that from the banks of late, right? <laughs> the banks, the not banks, <laughs> the lending companies, right? Yeah, I guess yeah, we gotta, should actually yeah. be our own banks, but uh, unbank ourselves not with Celsius, obviously. Like, I mean, just, any just final people thoughts? Should just yeah, be, there you go. People should just be a little more conscious with the services that they rely on on a day-to-day -day basis, right? If your cell phone provider went bankrupt tomorrow, right, or all cell phone providers went bankrupt, how would you call people? How would you get in touch, right? When you put your money in an ATM and it shows you a number in your checking account, Unless it's in your hand, it's you're relying on someone else. So just being a little bit more conscious about the services that we rely on for everyday life, I think is you know incredibly important. And we'll start to really affect and make people start to change their behavior.
Anything that I may have missed here before I let you go that you're dying to talk about? Or did we cover it all? <laughs> I think we covered it all, yeah. Awesome, man. So listen, where can people find you, keep up with you after this conversation? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at 0xb1. Uh, I think uh, my partner and I will be announcing something about this company that we're building uh, in the next few months. And yeah, uh, always happy to talk to anyone who thinks that they can help effectuate change in the world. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. I'm sorry for all that you've been through. It's been <laughs> Don't a, be. a rough, rough few years for everybody, but uh, you've for <laughs> sure the brunt of it in a worse manner than most. Hey, we all got to do what we got to do. Crazy story, man. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you. Talk soon. 